Hello and welcome to this book club for Nora Vincent's Self-Made Man and I am joined by Harry and Dan. Hello. Fantastic. Hello. So Harry knows Nora Vincent's backstory. Off air, you were saying you didn't. No, I've read the book and I know that she's a New York liberal, a feminist and a lesbian. Was. Right. Was being, yeah, the primary term here. Yes. Now this right. is very interesting because this was last year, I believe, Nora Vincent sought assisted suicide. In Switzerland, after, I believe, wasn't it? Yes, after experiencing severe depression because of the events of this book. So that casts a lot of things in a very dark Ooh. light. And this yeah. book was initially researched in the early 2000s as well. So it yes. was a, a long while. 2006. The book came out in 2006. The research probably would have been done over the course of, I don't know. It was, it was 18 months. So, so 18 so, months from maybe 2003 to 2005 or around that mm. period. To, to give the viewers the context here, this, this book is about a woman who spent... A year, two years, eighteen uh, months, yep. eighteen months, um, living as a man, um, no, no surgeries or anything. She just basically disguised herself through acting and um, costume and all that kind of stuff to be as a man. She wanted to get the male experience. Yeah, th this and wasn't she, any sort of expression of transsexualism. No, she it makes was, it very clear throughout, and she reveals herself to a number of the people that she made friends with during it. She's always very clear. Nothing to do with transsexuality. It was a journalistic experiment. Yes. And she does conclude the book by saying that living in as a man was hard, very hard. She comes to that conclusion. Um, I didn't realise it was so bloody hard that she had to take her own life. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll just go for a bit of biographic detail and we'll just run through the chapters in, yeah. in Rank Order Boys. So she was born on the 20th of September 1968 and she was a journalist for the outlets like The Village Voice. So she was enmeshed in gay culture for a bit. Salon, New York Times, New York Post, Washington Post. Typical lefty outlets. So not someone you'd think would be very sympathetic to the plight of men. Oh, she definitely started as being unsympathetic to mm. men. Yes. She definitely went into all of those experiences expecting the worst from men. That, yes. that initial chapter that she explains her thought process for, it makes it very clear that she was expecting almost to have the golden gates opened for yep. her. All of a sudden she would have access to myriad opportunities that she never could as a woman. She got a hefty dose of reality. Mm. Yes. And that dose of reality was what tipped her over the edge because in Switzerland on the 6th of July 2022, age 53, she sought assisted suicide for depression. She didn't have any chronic physical long-term illnesses. It was purely mental. And she said that it had stemmed from her experiences while disguised as a man and being faced with the shock of the what I think Zero HP Lovecraft calls the overwhelming apathy of the universe to men unless they prove themselves or at the top of the hierarchy. Yep. It was quite astounding to her how ignored and put down she felt in various parts of her experiment. She did an interview with NPR shortly after this came out. She said, I had, I would say, a, a nervous breakdown. I went into terrible depression. I think I also developed a tremendous empathy for transsexuals because I, th I think part of what precipitated that breakdown was also the fact that I was trying to hold two gender identities in your mind at the same time. It sets up this cognitive dissonance that's really untenable. I was sort of doing the reverse, you know, to what transsexuals do. I remained a woman. My brain was female. I felt that I was a woman very strongly, but I was trying to pass as a man, and that's just a conflict I couldn't sustain. So when she was asked by the host... Do you miss Ned? And she says, not at all. I don't. I'm glad to be rid of him and happy to be a woman. I have to say, I absolutely love it and I think it's a privilege. And she later went on and told ABC, when you mess around with that, your identity, when you mess around with something that you need that helps you function, I found out that gender lives in your brain in something much more than a costume. I learned that the hard way. Vincent says she's glad she's healed now and glad to be rid of Ned. And this was at the time. She obviously didn't heal. But her views about men have changed forever. Men are suffering. They have different problems than women have, but they don't have it better. They need our sympathy. They need our love. And maybe they need each other more than anything else. They need to be together. And she said, 
that it took experiencing life as a man to appreciate being a woman, and again, repeats the fact that it's a privilege. But she was actually cancelled among the gay press because she wrote in The Village Voice an article that was against transsexualism. She actually said this, Nietzsche declared God dead more than a century ago. It has taken the likes of Foucault, Derrida, and their imitators to kill something that is arguably far more precious, namely the self. And that, I submit, is what the rise of transsexuality indicates, or, to use the more thoroughly fashionable term, signifies. It signifies the death of the self, the soul, that good old-fashioned, indutable I, so beloved of Descartes, whose great adage, I think, therefore I am, has become an ontological joke on the order of, I tinker, and therefore I am. So there was no diagnosable gender dysphoria that she had. It yeah. was just masquerading as a man put her through a lot of the pressures to reconcile her two identities and catalyze the pre-existing depression because of the experience that men have with people socially disregarding them. So, so two points on that. First of all, she made comments about um, you know living as a man but having a female brain. And she tried to draw a distinction between that and people who are transsexual. Actually, it's the same for them. Um, yes, who, there are a number of videos that have started to come out recently. Of, yeah. uh, both detransitioners and people who are still ma uh, female to male transitioners who are still within their transition where they say, I just did not realise that it would be this difficult. Mm. And, and, and on the second point, she clearly went into this and she describes it in the book as well, that she, you, you can understand this, for, a, for any New York liberal, um, especially one ensconced as her in the whole left-wing paradigm, which she was, which was not just gay culture. It was working at Vox, did you say, or whatever it was. So on, no, so on the yeah. left-wing she, she was very much a part, and she, she, she describes how she did women's studies and all those kind of things. So for somebody like her, it is a absolute core supposition of your being that women are suppressed by men and men get it good. And she was so thoroughly disabused of that notion through that that it basically knocked out a fundamental chunk of her underlying psyche. What's quite interesting... Mm. I mean, she describes at the end, it's not just in the interviews and such, she describes at the end how she checked herself into a mental hospital and she said there was no specific moment like in a film where she had a breakdown, your camera zooms into her yeah. face and you see the cracks in her eyes. No, it was just a case of she realised one day that she had been living basically suicidally for a few months after it. Probably she she realised that all that of her assumptions about the world were wrong. There was and that, that is a tough thing for a liberal to realise. Yeah, because the, the, we, we take these assumptions into our unconscious and we don't mm. think about them uh, to the point where when they get knocked out, all of a sudden that functioning part of you has changed in a way that you can't measure, you can't quantify it. All mm. of a sudden it's just the qualitative experiences you have day to day, which can be very difficult to pick up on as they're happening until it could be too late. And it seems that even for the fact that she checked herself into mental hospitals, even for the fact that she stopped the experiment at a point when she thought it was appropriate, it seems that she'd already gone far beyond the period where those changes had had too much of a damaging effect on her, hence why she chose to get euthanized. I, I will year. say that she might have been slightly more receptive than some of her leftist bubble counterparts because she does say that she was raised Catholic, hence why she chose a monastery as one of her ah, avenues yes. to understand male bonding. And there's something that you picked up on. Yeah. In one of the dates, she hinted that she might have been far more against abortion than some of her abortion up until the point of birth contemporaries in the space. She, she also, throughout the text, it's very clear that she's much more self-aware of liberal presuppositions and the liberal mindset and the liberal attitudes and behavioural patterns than some of her other authors and colleagues would have been, which is probably one of the reasons yeah. why she was willing to go ahead with an experiment like this in the first place. Because even choosing to take those steps and live as a man 
she would have recognized, even if she had assumed initially that mm. I'm going to be proven right on everything, there is still a bit that opens you up to immense vulnerability to I, your worldview being completely destroyed. I'll definitely give her credit was. for that. She she did show remarkable um, willingness to engage with ideas and open-mindedness and all that kind of stuff. I really wonder if it'd be possible for any liberal to do this today. Mm. I, th I think this is a well, product I've, I've of the early 2000s. On her Wikipedia page, she was described as a libertarian. So that might have come later on in her life. I would but, imagine no, after no, these no, there, there, there was a strong tradition of left-wing libertarians, mm. but they were dying out by the early 2000s. So she might have been part of an older paradigm. Certainly, mm. yes, yeah, so she is certainly a different strain of liberal to those that we experience these days. Just for context from what you were mentioning as well and from the interview, mm. Ned was the name of her male alter ego. Mm. And what you were saying when she was purging herself of Ned was very interesting because by the end of the book, it seems very clear that Ned is not just a persona that she willfully takes on. He's almost become sort of a, parasit a parasite in her mind. He's become a mode of thinking that she switches to without consciously doing so. So once again, that's just another aspect of her personality that had been fragmented without her really realizing it as it was happening. Mm. It's worth building off of what you were saying there, just in the logistics of it, not just in the political climate, but could this be replicated today? Because some of the things that Vincent ends up doing, and the chapters are broken down into her various experiences, they wouldn't be the same. So the, the chapters go as, number one, it details her why she wanted to get into the experiment, how mm. she went about disguising herself as a man. Chapter two involves her joining an all-male bowling league and making friends there and eventually telling the men involved that she was a woman. Uh, chapter three involves, uh, that was the dating chapter, if I'm thinking yes, correctly. Yes, that sounds right. So that would be very different now, I think, because mm. of the experience of apps. They just yes. weren't really. A I think thing. she went on speed dating at one point, didn't she? Yes. I don't think yep. that's much that, of a that common was an early thing these days. The, the cold approaches are definitely not as common. These she got days. one date just asking someone on the street. Yeah, you'd and be lucky to succeed in that. Although to be fair, I think that would be more successful than you would expect it to be if you're an attractive man. Okay, so so <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking to Alex, who runs Date Psych, tomorrow about this. Um, in the last year, 55% of men have not approached a woman, but the majority of women would say they would like to be approached more. Mm. The problem is, and this is another logistical thing that people just don't think about, is with headphones and the phone, most people are not making eye contact and they're not approachable because they have to pause their music or take their earphones out. And so there are just technological barriers, as well as cultural barriers, being afraid of being reported for sexual harassment if you aren't attractive to the specific woman and the Me Too culture. Those yes. things just get immediately in the way and discourage men from doing the cold approaches that Vincent talks about very sympathetically as being very Yes, that's an interesting do. point, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's similar to when you see women who are rated very highly in attractiveness, that because men are put off by the idea that I'm not good enough to approach someone like that, they get approached less and so will be more likely to be receptive if you do approach them just because it's slightly rarer for them. Definitely. And then chapter four is about sex. And this is another one that wouldn't be replicated as well because she goes to a strip club to get the male experience of purchasing sex. That wouldn't be the case just because the amount of strip clubs have probably declined in terms of the amount of real estate that it would cost versus the amount of patrons that are going has gone down probably with the advent of internet porn and this mm. isn't something she could have written the chapter about because porn is a purely consumer non-social experience and women and men consume porn differently so she could never actually have the male porn consumer experience so that just wouldn't be a possibility mm. to write about also i mean i think I, dan will probably be more aware of this than i am but i think strip clubs are still relatively common mainly in <laughs> larger cities um and <laughs> 
I, I noted that Swindon's got one. I, I walked past it. The oh other yeah, day. we do. Don't we? Yes. Um, I, I think strip clubs have always seemed like a very American thing to me. I, I don't know if that's accurate, just because. And this isn't this isn't me trying to cover up for myself. Honestly, legitimately, I've never been to one. No. So reading, no, I've spent hundreds of hours in them. Oh, I, was, I was in the city. I'm I'm certain so, that you yeah. have. <laughs> uh, but like reading the chapter that she wrote on it was an eye-opening experience for me in that sense and also they it really put me off I mean I already never wanted to go to them in the first place but it really put me off even further because of how scuzzy it sounds although it sounds like she went to some particularly low she went to bad ones Oh, it's, it's like restaurants. You need to go to good ones. I will also say that um, obviously she can't she can't have the full male sexual experience, given that she is a woman dressed as a man. But narrowing it down purely to strip clubs for the sexual experience seemed like a very narrow way of trying to get into the male mm. sexual experience. It's just you're going to attract, you're going to meet very particular people if you go to those. You're going to meet particular women if you go to those. You're not going to get as broad a spectrum. But at the same time, given her narrowed options, I can understand why that was the easiest way for her to go. Mm, absolutely. Uh, the monastic one where she spends time in the monastery, that would probably still say the same, and that was chapter five. The chapter on work might be a bit different, because I think the corporate Door environment... Door-to-door salesman. Yeah, yeah, again, it's a bit like the uh, the strip club. She, ch she chose the scuzziest possible end of that experience, and therefore would... So I find those two chapters weaker. But the, also the, the composition of the corporate environment has changed in terms of the diversity hires has changed workplace culture. It's a lot more stifling now. It's less yes. bro-y than she would have represented here. Yeah, like, e e even the cheap sales thing that she went into. Yeah. Yes, and then the male self-help self retreat one would probably still be the same, except it would probably be run by Hustlers University now instead. Yeah. So that's the basic chapter overrun can, can i i just don't know if we'll get onto it because it's more of an aside she does in one chapter i forget which chapter it is but i just wanted to mention that we were talking about her ch her uh, chap uh, essay that she did against transsexualism and the interviews that she was doing where she said she felt more empathy to them there is a particular page of the book where she discusses people's reactions to those of people of the opposite sex and of the same sex as them, and the way that they shift their behavioural patterns for them completely unintentionally and unknowingly. They just do it as something natural, it's second nature to people. Because as we all know, being able to recognise somebody's physical sex is one of the first things that you notice within a split second. It's what our brains are trained to do. And the fact that when she, she noticed that if people didn't realise if she was a man or a woman at first, because she was looking, maybe she hadn't applied her costume properly that day and she was looking particularly androgynous, that they would have this instant look of fear as they were real, trying to figure out how should I address this person? How should I behave in front of this person? And that's another part, not to turn it all about transsexualism, about the transsexual experiences that you, you, most people are not going to pass in a million years, particularly male to female transsexuals. It's going to be very, very difficult for them to do so. So not only is, are you going to feel the disconnect of people not treating you in the way that you expect to be treated, you're actually putting everybody else through a quite distressing experience in having to try and tailor your behavior to them at all times. It's like holding people hostage in a social situation. This is something I've remarked almost in the inverse that men do, and this is part of my case for why men should wear suits more often. It doesn't just fill you with a sense of dignity, but it's also an act of social consideration because it's a lot better to walk around in a civilization where people are well put together 
and and so you're showing courtesy to other people's eyeballs. This is something she even remarks on later on in her work chapter where she says, I've been wearing baggy clothes as part of my disguise, mainly big hoodies and big t-shirts and jumpers and that. When I put on my suit for the first time, I felt powerful and mm. I realized that people were looking at me in the same way. And so she does get that imbuing of the same kind of commanding respect the man in a decently tailored suit will get. So in mm. the same way as transsexuality and commanding pronouns is kind of a social power play, so is a suit, it's just a considerate one. And Interesting that she it's, it's often that. been remarked that the sorts of men who in their 50s did, uh, revert to autogynophilia tended to be quite high testosterone in their earlier lives, primarily because it's a, just another power play for them, another way of exercising social control over other people in the way that they would have been more comfortable with when they were younger. Obviously, there's a degenerate sexual aspect of it as well, but there, there is another aspect to that. Mm. Another, another aspect of the dark triad. Well, well, speaking of passing, then I suppose we'll get into the actual structure of the book. The first chapter is her mainly detailing how she went about the disguise. I mean, she was nearly six foot. She was sort of blokish in her aesthetic anyway. And yeah. she said that her, the way she went about the transformation in a, a kind of 12th night fashion was she had a, a pad, unpadded sports bra to flatten her chest down. She was gluing fake stubble on every morning. And she learned it from a like a so she went. She drink. went to an actual makeup artist. So she did several things. She went to a makeup artist, and they did the trick with, with finely cut wool glued on to give the effect of stubble, which was apparently sufficient. She went to an acting coach, and she did the whole posture and walking thing because obviously that's quite different. And she went to a vocal coach who taught her how men project the voice, and it was things like um, uh, w women, like w women calling a taxi will halt you command men just tend to instinctively give commands whereas women will ask on and try and pull in that kind of thing. it's a diff it's a different format mm. so she went through actually quite good prep in order to get there but yes it was all hinged on the fact that she started off as a butch lesbian and mm. so she was always seen as the masculine end of the female spectrum however that's interesting and when we come to the dating aspect we find that she was constantly struggling because she thought being a macho woman she was going to be able to pass as a man. When she tried to do dating, she got almost this sense of revulsion from women for being far too feminine. She was nicknamed my gay boyfriend yes. by one of them in particular. Yeah, and uh, I did find it funny, uh, like you say, she was. I think she lists herself as five ten in this, and it's quite funny that a number of the male friends that she makes throughout this are actually all shorter than her. So that is mm. one aspect of it that is easy easier for her to pass in that sense. But she still unknowingly will have a lot of feminine tics and feminine mannerisms that are, are easy for women to pick up on, if only yeah. because women, being the social creatures that they are, are built to pick up on them so that they're able to socialise more easily. I, I will throw in some other random aspect as well, from, and this I think is in the conclusion of the book, is that after she had been passing for a while with a particular group, be it the, the bowling guys or the, or the monks or whatever, um, on a couple of occasions, she kind of forgot herself and mm. she didn't tap down her breasts. She didn't apply the stubble. She basically turned up as a woman and nobody saw anything, even though she was stood there with breasts and a clean face. She'd but, essentially socially conditioned them to yeah, not and they, notice. Yeah, and they, did, they didn't even look for it at that point. And so she was able to pass even, even as a woman. Mm. Well, in the inverse, though, the women that notice it, they didn't notice she was a woman most of the time instead mm. they just noticed the markers of femininity as weak masculinity yes mm. and that put they them just thought she was gay yeah and, 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 it, <laughs> and they we, were right in a sense and they were the, revolted by it yeah and when we mentioned yeah. the dating chapter that actually mm. brewed contempt in her for the barriers which men must face in order to approach women and how mm. dismissive they can be with their rejection mm. uh, hence part of the reason circling back to how the dating chapter would have changed quite a lot of men 
establishing risk-averse behaviors in this day and age don't approach women because they are afraid of that rejection and the the mm. worst social consequences that might accrue as a result of me too but but yes um is that all we want to say about the first one before diving into her yeah, I, th doing I, think, the I think she's so, a very good job um setting herself up for this and you know she took it seriously as best as you can mm. yeah. trying to perform this kind of experiment yeah so her, her first experiment was going and joining the the all-male bowling team and she wanted a competitive sport because she wanted to see how men socialised and brought each other up. And there was a really interesting bit that I found here. So her interactions with her teammates and her opponents was, I was surrounded by men who had cement dust in their hair and sawdust under their fingernails. They had nicotine-sallowed faces that looked like ritual masks, and their hands were as tough and scarred as falcon gloves. These were men who, as one of them told me later, had been shoveling shit their whole lives. Looking at them, I thought, it's at times like these when the term real man really hits home with you, and you understand in some elemental way that the male animal is definitely not a social construct. Now, when she met these men, one of the things that she noticed how they established respect reciprocally mm. was, was the handshake. She said, from the outside, the handshake, this ritual, had always seemed overdone to me while well, the macho ceremony. But from inside, it was completely different. There was something so warm and bonded in this handshake. Receiving it was a rush, an instant inclusion in a camaraderie that felt very old and practiced. To me, woman-to-woman -woman introductions often seemed fake and cold, full of limp, limp gentility. I've seen a lot of women hug one another this way too. Sometimes even women who have known each other for a long time and think of themselves as good friends. They're like two backward magnets pushed together by convention. Their arms and cheeks meet and maybe the tops of their shoulders, but only briefly, the briefest time politeness will allow. It's done out of habit and for appearances, a hollow, even resentful gesture bred into us and rarely felt. The solidarity of sex was something that feminism tried to teach us and something, it now seemed to me, that men had figured out long ago and perfected a long time ago. On some level, men didn't need to learn or remind themselves what brotherhood was, that brotherhood was powerful. It was just something they seemed to know. When this man whom I'd never met shook my hand, he gave me something real. He included me. Most of the women I'd ever shaken hands with or even hugged had held something back as if we were in constant competition with each other or secretly suspicious knowing it but not knowing it and going through the motions in the all the same in my view bra burning hadn't changed all that much and that's why this is a good book yes because insights like that yes yes that is an mm. that's a particularly excellent passage that stuck with me as well this recognition it's the fact that she had the wherewithal to recognize the differences between the behavior because i what she's describing there with the women being like backwards facing magnets trying to be attracted to one another when they hug i have seen that many many times no matter how close the friendship is or how long it has been together, there is the implicit knowledge of women can be the most ruthless backstabbers you've ever met in your entire life. Whereas yeah. men, somewhat surprisingly to some women, have a more innate desire for cooperation with men, yeah. probably because of the fact that being that we are the problem-solving sex, we know that other men, if you are competent, are useful in a pinch. You mm. are the poet. It's why we say, you know, you're, if, if I was going to be stuck in a trench with someone, it'd be you. So, it'd be, it'd be so, you. so two random thoughts on that. They're not in the book, but just, just random thoughts on it. The amount of women who've told me that they don't like working for other women. Oh, that, yeah. that one comes up a lot. And the other one is the, is the truth that women tend to be really nice to each other in person and then bitch about each other behind Constantly. their backs. Men are the exact opposite. I mean, we just went down the shops before this and we must have insulted each other at least 30 times on the way there and back again. But I guarantee if any of us gets asked about anyone else, well, I, I, I don't know what you say about me, but I, I'm always... You always I'm big always other men kind. up. Yeah, you always big other men up when they're not around, and it's the complete opposite when you're in front of them. Well, she mentions that aspect of the insult as part of the male bonding yes. ritual in this chapter, mainly in the way that there is one of the three men that she put uh, that she joins the bowling group with. She joins their team. 
They have, one of them brings his, I think it's 12 year old son along sometimes, and they'll be quite harsh to him and they won't be forgiving with him. If he messes up, they'll make sure he knows it. He'll, they'll throw names at him, but he approaches it with the perspective of eagerness in this. He's being insulted, he's being somewhat belittled, but he knows that it's a challenge for him to step up to rather than something to wilt at and fail at. And that's part of the male bonding insults thing, which is, I know you've got thick skin and you can take it and we can have a good laugh in this. If you throw an insult out at somebody and they demonstrate fragility, that's a sign to yes. other men that you are not going to be useful for me if we end up in a pinch together. Yes, that's a good point. Well, she, she analogizes this using the tribe dynamics in the book because she says women are inclined towards covert competition because they know that if another woman is doing better for them than them, they might get a higher share of the resources. But if they're found to be too competitive, they'll be ostracized from the social group. Whereas men will not let other men fail because when she was bowling badly, they didn't hide it from her that she needed to get better when they thought that she was Ned. Instead, if we are out on a hunt together and we've got one loose link in the chain, then that compromises everything for all of us. Or if we're in a trench together, mm. I need to know that when the fire firefight starts, you can have my back. And so with insults, we are testing each other's mettle and seeing if someone's ego will get in yes. the way of helping everyone But at else. the same time, she learned that she was never rejected for being a bad bowler. She was consistently a bad bowler, and they let her know it. They and just accepted it after yeah, a while but, because but they, they began but they to did enjoy accept her company. And they, they offered her what help that she could, but they, they let her contribute the best that she could. And as long and, and she said that as long as, as long as they could tell that I was doing the best that I could, that was enough for them. Yeah, there was a great bit here, actually, where she, she writes, as men, they felt compelled to fix my ineptitude rather than be secretly happy about it and try to uh, abet it under the table, which is what a lot of female athletes of my acquaintance yeah. would have done. I remember this from playing sports and against women all my life. No female athlete ever tried to help me with my game or give me tips. It was every woman for herself. It wasn't enough that you were successful. You wanted to see your sister fail. Girls can be a lot nastier than boys when it comes to someone who stands in the way of what they want. They know where to hit where it will hurt the most, and their aim is laser precise. Now, the interesting... Yes, again, that's another wonderful insight. These, it's interesting to hear this because these are things that I'm sure that we've all suspected about women and we all know implicitly is true whether or not it's been said outright. But then to have a woman just come out and say it yeah. is very, very useful. As I've often said, women don't have friendship circles. They have self-esteem circular firing squads. <laughs> They just cannibalise each other. That is a particularly brutal <laughs> truth, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what, hey, is that your quote? It is, yes. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, what Dan was saying as well, I mean, my, my fiancé has worked a number of jobs and the ones that she's always had the most trouble at are the ones where there's a higher proportion of women in the work because they will inevitably... Women are one-man drama machines. They will, if they get bored, they will dredge something up so that they can have an excuse to entertain themselves by making everybody else's life miserable. Um, you know, from my experience, my missus is just somebody who is trying to get on with work and get on with her life. Other people desperately want to fill that up. If you, like you, you or I, if we were at um, just a normal job, say you're in a factory, you're trying to make it more entertaining for the lads because we're all in together. Mm. We all just want to get through this shift. So we best not make it as miserable as possible for everybody else. Women see the opposite. They go, if I make it as miserable as possible for everybody else, 
I'll be more entertained. Yeah, but the interesting part about that as well is that she contrasts the fact that when a man has a display of com competency, it's mesmerizing for all the men around and they don't get envious. Yes. They have almost like a religious experience. Yes, it's with so, so, so there's a particular passage about that where she she was explaining she just didn't get the vibe that the men had. And she, she describes going up to bowl and then she noticed that she's the only one up there apart from one other guy, because every other, because basically what happened is a guy, he's on the verge of having a perfect game and he's, he's, he's coming up to bowl his last, last strike or, or, or whatever it is that you call these things. Um, and all the other guys in the room had twigged it, had recognised it, and they were all sat there respectfully watching this guy, giving him space, and then she finally clocked it. But there was such an instinctual thing that she didn't pick up on. Yeah, there, there, there's a bit there where it says that this guy in particular, he'd have to throw three strikes in a row on this one to earn a perfect score. And somehow everyone in that hall mm. had felt the moment of grace descend and had bowed out accordingly, except, of course, me. It was a beautiful moment, totally still and reverent. A bunch of guys instinctively paying their respects to the superior athleticism of another guy. The guy stepped up to the line, threw his three strikes one after the other, and on the final strike, an eruption, and every single guy in that room including me, as Ned, surrounded that player and moved him to shake his hand or pat him on the back. It was almost mystical, that telepathic intimacy and the communal joy that succeeded it, crystalline in its perfection. The moment said everything at once about how how facility uh, attuned men are to each other and how much of this women miss when they look from the outside in. And this is why we say whenever a man is resentful of another man's success, yes. he's displaying feminine mm. energy. He's being a yes. backbiter. I, mean, I, I have been in that situation before when I've been playing a gig, uh, when I was still in bands. And let's say I, I, I just got off a of stage and thought I did a really good set there. And then you see another band come up immediately after and blow you off the stage and every single one of them is doing an absolute 10 out of 10 performance and particularly as a guitarist a lead guitarist comes up and shreds a guitar solo that you yourself that i could never play anywhere near as well both in terms of technique and feel melody used and there is a part of me that is envious because mm. i think damn i want to be that good but it's not me looking at him and going oh, i hate you it's me no. going wow that's incredible. That is something that's aspirational to me. That's, that's well, it, something like when you, that I when you respect. See, when you see a guy with a good pair of guns on him, you think, yeah, good for you. I mean, oh, you, thanks, Dan. You, I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> you never feel negative. And I don't want to be an, an, an amateur um, anthropologist or something, but you, you've got to kind of imagine that that stems to something quite deep in our, in our species. If a group of men are together and one of them excels, you know, it, it's got to come back to that primordial hunting instinct. Well, if, you, if you, one know, of you, excels, you know that you're probably better off yeah. Yes. Groups if, if one there. guy can throw a spear and down a mammoth in one, that's a remarkable achievement, and, and that, that's good tonight. for everybody. But back in but back in the village, if one of the women surpasses the other women in some way, and she gets all of the attention, she's going to get that one guy who can throw the spear better than the other guys. That's a th ex excelling in the female world is a threat in a way that excelling in the male world isn't. Yes, mm. and this and this is why she concludes that chapter with the most I can say is that the men on the team were far better men than than I in that and undoubtedly far worse or just as bad in ways that I would never and could never know. They made me look ridiculous to myself and they made me laugh about it. And for that, I will always be grateful to them because anybody who does that for you is a true and great friend. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.